Today on episode number 419 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Disrupting the Syllabus with Dr. Julia Charles. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Julia Charles Lennon is an associate professor of English at the University of Colorado. She recently published her book, That Middle World, Race, Performance, and the Politics of Passing. Her teaching and research interests center on racial crossing, passing literature, Black women writers, Black girlhood studies, Black young adult literature, and film and popular culture. She's currently working on her second book, Finding Fawcett, which is a biography of the new Negro Renaissance writer and literary editor, Jesse Redman Fawcett. Julia is the co-founder of the Loving Luggage Project, a nonprofit organization that provides new luggage for youth currently in or aging out of foster care. Julia Charles Lennon, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I need you to take us back. Can you t- <laughs> can you take us back to what you recall about the syllabus as a document from what, how, whatever the earliest time is you remember it showing up for you in school? I think if I had to go back, I'd probably go back to undergrad as an English major at Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And, you know, if I'm honest, I think the document has always been formulaic for me. I look at it as a contract. What do I need to do to, to achieve an A? Right. And so I am often looking at, as a student anyway, I was looking at what assignments are there? How many are they? What percentage uh, do they count? And when are they due? Right. And so that I can sort of map out my semester for myself. But I was kind of uh, type A in that way. I looked at it more as a contract. What does it take to achieve an A? And so in, in order for me to get to what it takes to achieve an A, I needed to know what the assignments were, what, what they weighed, when they were due, if there was any room for any flexibility insofar as like if I could slack on anything, what would it be? Certainly not an assignment that's worth 25% of your grade, right? That's one you want to hit out of the park. And how much do things like discussion count in the class? Those kinds of things. So I was more interested in mathematically speaking, how much effort do I need to put in to achieve an A, right? And that's how I I absorb the document. And I think that's how a lot of students absorb the document too. Have I done everything I need to do to get the highest grade possible? Mm. Yeah. When I, when I was in undergrad, I don't, I didn't, I didn't have, in some aspects I had more of a type A personality, but it kind of depended on if it was in my major or not. So yeah, the more, <laughs> the more interesting the readings were, the more likely I would be to want to kind of follow on this track that had been predestined for me, if you will. Right. And then if it wasn't like, I really can only remember pulling the syllabus out when I'm so far deep, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but I don't, I don't even think I was necessarily savvy enough to, cause I remember I was failing. Um, let's see. I think I was failing microeconomics and then and then I was like 
oh my gosh, what do I have to do to to pass the class? But I don't think I was savvy enough at the time to like break it down mathematically, <laughs> like to, to gamify it for myself, to get myself out of this thing. It was more like, oh my gosh, I need help. And then I got tutoring on the subject from a roommate and then went to see the professor. That was one of the only times I ever went to office hours. But yeah, like, like I didn't even really know how to do it, <laughs> like to take advantage of <laughs> I will say, I will say, um, I'm giving myself way too much credit math- math- mathematically. I, um, I am an English major through and through, right? My mother, however, is an accountant. Okay. And so, and so whenever I complained about a grade, even in high school and um, my senior year in high school, I'll never forget it. This is the first time I felt like math was useful for me where there, there were two uh, situations. One was I was shopping in a store with my mom and I asked her to give me uh, if she'd buy me this pair of jeans. And she said, how much are they? And I said, whatever the cost was. And I said, but they're 25% off. And she said, so how much would I have to pay? And I told her what 25% off would be. And she said, oh, you must not want them. I asked how much I'd have to pay for them, not how much off they were. And so, <laughs> and so I quickly got percentages down, you know, and, and I remember my senior year in high school, a teacher had given me a grade that was mathematically in the grade book seemed like way harsher than it should have been. And my mom asked me if this grade was accurate. And I said, I don't think so, because how could a grade that weighs this much uh, that only weighs this much, bring my grade down this percentage, you know, and she explained the difference to me. And so I'm giving myself more credit, but it's actually my my mom being a pest about math that really um, made me game the system that way. Oh, I love having that backstory. Thank <laughs> you so much. So I'd like you to take us back to another slice of history in your life. And that would be about the first time you created a syllabus. What was that experience like for you? It was nerve wracking, to be honest. I was uh, fresh out of graduate school at Auburn University, teaching my first graduate course. And a lot of institutions have formulas for the way uh, for the way the syllabus should look. Right. Um, They should have, you know, for example, student learning outcomes or objectives. They should have the institution, the year, the semester, that kind of thing. And and so I I recall asking several colleagues at Auburn for copies of their syllabi just to see what it looked like. And more other than the content insofar as like what we were reading, my early syllabi were very much sort of mirrors of my of my peers. Right. Uh, They they very much mimicked whatever my peers had on their uh, on their syllabi. But the thing that I found most interesting about even the early and I, I would say boring (laughs) syllabi that I I created myself, the thing that I was most invested in, I found, were um, the assignments and the due dates, right? And so even if my colleagues had arranged their syllabi to focus, let's say, per week, I wanted to focus per class period because I found that there was always something interesting about knowing exactly what I'm reading in a given class period rather than a week, for example, knowing what I might focus on that week. If it was thematic, if my syllabus was uh, set up in a thematic way, um, what what unit are we in or what theme are we discussing this week? What are we trying to get to? And so even early on, as boring as my syllabi were, I think I was most interested in what the the student will encounter in a given class period. Mm. 
Yeah, I would. I would. I'm thinking back to. I would love to have been able to see some of those readings because even still today, that that aspect of kind of thinking about those themes and as they emerge, and something for me that that I see as a transition from adopting, you know, other people's syllabi who might have taught the class before or who are teaching different sections or whatever, is kind of going from at least in my discipline this temptation of like that you have to cover every chapter in every textbook. Right. I mean, and of course now even do you even have to have a textbook? <laughs> like right. my, my questions have really shifted so much, but then now when I do reading, I'm finding in some ways really trying to bend my own thinking around. I don't want them to read this whole book and then this whole book. So I already, like, I don't, I know I don't want them to read the whole thing in all cases, but then I'm trying to slice these themes. And, right. you know, sometimes that's really very yes. intense work to try to do well. Yes. And I, I kind of find myself also like you're talking really getting enthralled with the mystery of trying to yes. thread <laughs> together these things. Yeah. And then feeling like I get it wrong and kind of not wanting to throw all the work that I did out. But you know, I have done that before where it's like, okay, try to start totally from scratch. <laughs> I totally get it. And all of that. So today we're looking at disrupting the syllabus. And, and before we kind of talk about how we might do that, let's first look at why. What are some of the critical questions we should be asking ourselves about the syllabus today? Well, I think um, when it comes to the notion of disrupting the syllabus, I think the primary question should be, what is it that we're trying to disrupt, right? Because there are things I think um, that are necessary to keep and the language of disruption suggests to me that there is something uh, I think that begs for change or um, necessitates change over time. And so um, am I disrupting a standard by which we, uh, by which we do this work or am I disrupting a sort of ideology, right? Am I disrupting a way of thinking about this document? And I think for me, much of it is the latter, right? Because I am the, the English professor who, in my unapologetic pursuit of language that gets us ever closer to the thing, or thing we want to achieve, I am the professor who uh, rejects this notion of sort of what they might call mainstream American English, right? I, I reject that in the sense that I speak Black English deliberately in the classroom, Black on purpose, as I say, because one, Black English is my home language. James, James Baldwin tells us if Black English isn't a language, I don't know what is, you know? And the reason that I speak Black English in the classroom is because it's part and parcel of who I am, right? And I endeavor to bring my full self to the classroom space. And so every single class I have, I begin with this, I begin with a quote from Audre Lorde, who says, I've come to believe over and over again that what's most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, that the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. And, and if that is to be true, and I believe that it is, um, then my speaking is more than just this verbal kind of enterprise, right? It is bringing my fu the fullness of myself to the classroom space. And that is this where I get sort of the energy about disrupting this thing we call the syllabus, right? It's not so much disrupting it from the so-called mainstream as, as much as it is disrupting our thinking about the document itself, right? The ideology behind the document. Is it a contract with your students or do you view it as something um, even bigger than that, right? Or do you view it as a tool of engagement, which 
I view it as a tool of engagement. And as much as it is a contract with my students, the numbers make it a contract, right? But it's a tool for engagement. And that's how I view the disruption piece, right? How do I make this uh, flat document something bigger that can engage students in a way that they're not used to? Oh, my gosh. I love everything that you just said. And I'm excited for people to be able to just explore the show notes because they'll be able to click through. And you've so graciously shared the images from one of your syllabi. And um, I'm excited to share that. And, And it's fun to get to have seen that first. And then to hear you describe it as a tool of engagement. And and now I'm thinking, because you said the numbers make it a contract. So if I'm understanding what you're saying, and then trying to juxtapose that on top of looking at these visual images, you are, I think, saying not saying that it is completely not a contract or or at least completely not something that would convey expectations. I mean, on on you you do mention things on here like about late work. So right. so you do not use this as if I'm if I'm if I'm getting this. It is predominantly a tool of engagement, and yet part of that engagement seems to me, Julia, that you still care about me being clear, crystal clear, about what is expected. Right, absolutely. And I think the part uh, that matters the most for me is the tool of engagement. The part that matters the most for students is the contract portion, right? They want to know, did I do everything? If it says I've done everything to achieve an A, why haven't I achieved an A, right? It becomes incumbent upon me to make sure that I've given students every opportunity to pass. I also look look at the document as um, there are a lot of professors who might look at, for example, when they're grading a test, how many did you get right? versus how many did you get wrong, right? I'm looking at areas of of growth. How many did you get right this time? Sure, right? But what are the ways that you have grown from the beginning of the course to now, right? These are the things that you can't sort of capture in the syllabus. And you'll see them for me in fudgy places, like for example, class discussion, right? Class discussion is one of those places where it might be 10% of your grade, which we know you have to show up in order to have class discussion and that kind of thing. But how do I weigh class discussion in this kind of document? I weigh it as in, in, in a way that suggests, have you grown from the beginning of the class to the end of the class? And if I'm being quite honest with myself, it's not so much have you grown solely in your understanding of the material as much as it is, are you a better human being when you leave here than when you came in. And I don't even mean that in a completely moral way. I mean, are you thinking about the world differently for better or worse? I, I, you know, but are you thinking about the world differently than you did uh, before you encountered these characters in this moment, in this space, in this specific time with these classmates, right? When you came in here, you may have thought that this class, for example, was one of the classes that you just needed in order to graduate, or it's a diversity course or what have you, right? But there's something about encountering the characters in a significant way that might make you think about the world a little differently. And those are the things that I'm interested in. And so, yes, the document, in as much as it is a tool for engagement, it is a contract and you can't you can't avoid that. Right. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, and neither would students, they wouldn't want you to, you know, be able to make it up on the fly. That's just not, they want to know how to get an A. Mm. I'd like to fast forward us a little bit in time now, Julia, to January the 13th, 2022. You posted a tweet that says, decided to share my syllabus sans the reading slash listening schedule with y'all since 
at Nick Since Forever, and that is your wife, Dr. Nicole Charles Lennon, did such a fantastic job with the design. I definitely want to take this class. And side note, Julia, I would too. I'm so signed up for, for it in my mind. And you you tweet, I'm teaching dope-ass writers and artists too. I hope the students love this. And so this, would you describe to us, Julia, what is this that we can't visually see necessarily? So help us auditorily envision what it is. What is this this syllabus that we're looking at here? Sure. So this is for my uh, literary analysis of, of the Cypher class. Uh, the class is literary analysis, right? And and I had I had gone to some colleagues to see, you know, what they taught thematically around literary analysis. But I have a love for hip hop culture. And so I decided to teach literary analysis of the cypher, which is part and parcel of hip hop. And so I asked my wife, Dr. Nicole Charles Lennon, to design a syllabus for me that looked like a hip hop magazine. So thinking things like Source Magazine or Vibe, or even thinking about the film Brown Sugar that focuses specifically on XXL Magazine, that kind of thing. And I wanted something that looked exactly like that. And I wanted it to feature Black women in hip hop, which we know often are pushed to the margins of hip hop culture in general. And so I think what she achieved here is something pretty brilliant, right? Because it looks exactly like a hip hop magazine. And on the cover is the queen Lauren Hill, right? And there's so much to be said about Lauren Hill in general. And so I wanted her on the cover, cover for a few reasons. One, she has only one full studio album and, and is still considered among the best hip hop artists of all time. And so I wanted to feature her, but, and, and so you have a, a graphic here with uh, Lauren Hill in the, in the center and, and it has headlines the way a magazine would have. And so it says Afrofuturism and hip hop, and that features uh, Janelle Monet and Outkast and Missy Elliott and so many more. And our unit on hip hop was so fascinating because it dealt with Outcast and and how oftentimes Outcast is seen as the the genesis of what we consider Afrofuturism in hip hop, but I might argue that Missy Elliott belongs in that conversation as well, and she predates them. And so it was an interesting conversation, and we got to engage some some pretty dope artists in in just in that section. And then we talked about just uh, acclaimed albums and who we consider to be on the sort of Mount Rushmore, as it were, of hip hop, talking about legendary lyricists, right? And if you go into the next page, you'll see a, um, it's an information page, essentially, like it says MC is Dr. Julia S. Charles Lennon. And it goes just goes on to define what the course is about. And it keeps that kind of magazine feel. It has Missy Elliott on that page. And then the following page, is called the playlist. And this is the page that students are most interested in. This is has some of the things that we're going to be discussing in class. For example, we read The Outcast Reader, which was a hit amongst students. Love The Outcast Reader. We did Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill. We also did She Begat This, Joan Morgan's sort of ode to Lauren Hill. And students absolutely fell in love with that. We did Jay-Z, Tupac. We did some, obviously, some Outkast, Queen Latifah. And we also did the anthology of rap, right? And so we didn't have to go far and wide to find, you know, where we could get these lyrics in a, leg in a legitimate way, right? And then the other pages, um, Understand the Assignment, which just tells you what's due, when it's due, and how much it's worth, right? And, and it, I always have a section about late work because I loathe late work. But on that page, it features a graphic of Run DMC, and um, it just talks about how we wanted a, a 
a journal reflection, but we wanted it to be a little bit different. So we have a meme reflection where students have to create a meme about different things that we talked about during the week and reflect on it. The multimedia presentations, which turned out to be fantastic. So, and the part I left out was the, the, um, the entire sort of listening and reading list and students loved it. In fact, by the end of the semester, they were contributing to the listening list, right? They, they were saying things like, how come we haven't discussed, for example, more, more Kendrick Lamar, for example, or Kendrick Lamar in conversation with J. Cole or Eminem. And, and so by the end of the semester, students wanted to add people to the list, which I thought is usually a sign that you've done something good. Oh, I love that. So uh, when, when we were talking earlier, Julia, you were talking about really contrasting what has historically been a contract and viewed probably by both parties as a contract and, and now wanting to disrupt that and wanting to capture the sense of engaging students, which visually you do. And not, it's not just visually, it's also what comes through in, in uh, designing it in the way that you have. And then I wonder though, cause what I love about it is that you haven't left it entirely that like we were talking about having the clear expectations. And so um, would you explain, because not everyone's going to know that you're meeting them where they are when you use this expression, understand the assignment. So could you talk a little bit about the sort of for some some people listening, maybe an inside reference they wouldn't get? Like, what, what does it mean today to say that you understood the assignment or that you didn't? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a sort of, I would, I would argue, Black colloquial phrase about understanding the assignment. There's a, there's a song about it. It just essentially means that there was a task before you, not, not just that you achieved it, right, but that you met and exceeded expectations with it, right? So understanding the assignment is not just a, a superficial, I, I understand what you're asking for, it's more that I not just understand, but I presented it in a way that allows you to laud me for how well I actually did with this thing, right? And that there's a task at hand, but there are people who understand it. And then there are those who, in some larger way, understand it, which is to say they far exceed expectations with a given task. Mm. Well, I'm going to transition us now into the recommendations segment, but I'm going to do it a little different this time than I normally do. And that is to invite you to just stay just as engaged as you have been in the conversation, because I think I need your help with this. Because <laughs> what I what I found myself wanting to recommend first is just more generically for us to check ourselves, to check yourself. And what I mean by that is that I find, and I probably am talking more to myself than maybe anybody else listening, but I find when I see something as magnificent as what you're sharing about today, that I can sometimes shut myself down in unhealthy ways and start to have a mindset of, I can't do whatever it is. So I, I don't, I think some of this can be helpful when we recognize the areas in which we just kind of naturally thrive. But what I'm really recommending we check ourselves on is just anytime we might make a blanket statement like, I'm not good at, and then fill in some huge overarching thing. It is similar to what we've talked about on prior episodes, really wanting to caution people against ever saying, I'm not good at technology. Well, really, like, have you just shut yourself off? Like for every aspect of technology, so to be more precise and to change the language. So I will say, I am getting better at this aspect of technology. So when it comes to these kinds of, and I don't even want to call it a creative endeavor because yes, there's creativity, but I feel like that sort of undermines it when we 
phrase it as only a creative and and thus you think of your whole life as you know a work of creativity and then by all means let's call it all creative (laughs) but so I'd like to sort of check ourselves about you know not just saying oh I'm not creative I can't do that while at the same time wanting to recognize that part of when we start to feel ill-equipped that's a real thing. I mean, my gosh, sometimes we really don't understand the assignment. <laughs> sometimes we really are ill-equipped. So what might we then have to offer? It's sort of the second half of this to me is sometimes what we have to offer is beginner's mind. Yes. And I just started participating in this summer conference that's called MyFest, which stands for Mid-Year Festival. And yesterday I was in this whole session. They're doing things called Liberating Structures. And I go into this thing, I kind of knew what one was, but like that is literally like I just barely know what this is in an environment that's completely with people from all over the world. I'm having to like pull out, you know, where is that place? Like it is very invigorating, but also a environment with which I was experiencing a lot of things that I was unfamiliar with. Right. And so I thought like what what I can bring to mind is the beginner's mind. So no, I'm not going to don't pretend I'm going to be an expert on these things. But like that that is a gift that we can bring to communities that then can invite other people into the conversation. So anyway, I'd love to hear, Julia, just kind of your reaction to do you ever find yourself either wanting to tell other people, wanting to tell yourself to check yourself and your mindset? And then do you do you have any ways in which you try to sort of move to a different place or stay in that place and get beginner's mind? I don't know. What, what do you, you know? So, so a couple of things. Yes. Um, (laughs) I often have to, it's not so much that I'm, I'm having to check myself. It's actually as, as a principle, right? Checking myself. Am I going too far? Am I not going far enough? You know, all of the ways in which we try to keep ourselves, I would argue safe. Right. And also moving forward because the classroom is not, or should not be a static place. Right. And so Oftentimes, it is usually when it comes to creativity, particularly art, craft, design. My wife is a, a clinical and sports psychologist by profession. She is an artist by joy, right? And so it, she just learns these things, right? And if I can dream it up, she will make it happen. And she probably gets that from her mom. And so they're often asking me to do creative projects, and it unnerves me because I'm, I, I don't often think I'm good at this kind of thing, but what I am good at <laughs> is particularly in my mind's eye, creating a thing in my mind and figuring out and trying to communicate that with her so that if I describe it to her, she can make it happen. And so I stay out of her wheelhouse in, in so far as like when she hits a zone, when she's kind of doing these things, I'll, I'll try and uh, send you another syllabus that she did for me. It was like a black superhero class that I taught. And I told her I wanted the syllabus to look like a comic book and she far exceeded expectations. I mean, it was, it was a keepsake of a syllabus and it had all these black superheroes and what they were known for and all of this kind of thing. And students still contact me about that same syllabus. Right. And I'm just, I'm not good at that kind of thing or, and I would say I'm not, I'm getting better at it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm getting better at describing the thing I want to get her there faster. And so much so that other people have, I've seen my syllabi and have contacted me to say, Hey, who did this for you? And how do I get my hands on a syllabus for this? Right. And, and, and my wife does that kind of thing. She'll 
have a conversation with you and help you to create a syllabus. Now, granted, that's not free of charge, but she will absolutely help you create the syllabus that you want to engage your students. I taught a class, for example, on the Black American sitcom, and I wanted students to be able to create a podcast about sitcoms we were doing. And students were so excited about it that they just started. When the syllabus is a document that you can be excited about, I find that students become more creative during the class process. And that for me gives me joy. And so I check myself in a lot of ways. For example, not asking, I often don't like to ask for help, but I don't want a boring document, right? If you leave it up to me, you're going to get a document that's full of words. And so I've learned to ask for help. I've learned to reach outside myself and say, I want a syllabus that looks like this. For example, I was scheduled to teach a class at Auburn on uh, sneaker culture and hip hop culture in African-American literature. And I left the university before I got the chance to teach it. But my wife and I had already worked out what the syllabus would look like. It was going to look like an East Bay catalog full of sneakers that you could order because the class was all on sneaker culture. And that was going to be this. You could click on a sneaker. It, it would tell you the material history of the sneaker and all of this kind of thing. And I didn't get a chance to teach it before I left. And one of my good colleagues taught the class. And I don't know that his syllabus looked like what I had imagined. But I, I'm saying all this to say that the thing that I check myself about the most is thinking that it has to be only me who does it right? That I can ask for help. So when I ask my students, for example, to create a podcast, what do they know about creating a podcast, right? But what they, what they know is they have access to people who, for example, might be musicians or who might be editors or who might already work in this field. And they bring, they call all of that together to create these things. And so I do the same. Mm. Oh, I love that. We've been doing some work on this instrument that's called Clifton Strengths or Strengths Finder. And I've done a lot of work over many decades, you know, with the instrument and all that stuff. But this is the first time really looking at what are essentially your weaknesses? People don't like to call it that. But if it's your bottom, like they list it right. in order of first to 34th or whatever. Yeah, that's and that really is the recommendation. Like don't don't try to become good at this thing that is literally what you're showing up as the worst at and all of these right. things. Like, like maybe it's time to get somebody else like that. That can be part of then turning that it, the self-awareness enough to know like that. It's not going to be like a really good use of anyone's time to try to get better at that. But who else can I engage? Absolutely. It also teaches lessons. It teaches a lesson to your students, right? Like that, that while the assignments are theirs and they need to turn them in and they need to stand by what they've turned in. If it's something like a multimedia presentation and you are tired as, as I am of, of seeing a PowerPoint every, um, every time there's a presentation, how might they, um, for example, I had students to create um, a, um, a docu-series one semester and, and they had to find people to interview. They had to film it. They had to edit the film. They had to do all of this and they leaned into it. I mean, what fantastic documentaries they came up with about race in Auburn, Alabama, right? It was just the most beautiful project I'd seen in a class to that date. It, it was so what I do is I try to sort of mimic the behavior I want them to, to, to have, right? And so if I can't ask my wife to design a syllabus, then I... <laughs> How can I expect to ask my students to do something that's so far outside of their range, right? And it's not even about whether or not they're successful at the thing, but did you do the best you could absolutely do with the parameters you were given? Hmm. All right. I have two other small recommendations and I'll pass it over to you related to this. And, and 
So the second one would just be to start saving creative inspiration. So sometimes when I come across something like what you've shared here is to ask myself, you know, what is it that is standing out to you? And so in this particular case, one thing that's coming to mind as you've talked about all, all of these different syllabus design is thinking about context. Like, so if it's a course about black superheroes, comic book, like context, right? So like, is right. that is that what I'm drawing from it? Is it simply color that I'm drawing from it? Oh, these colors, I those really, you know, stand out to me as, you know, what a cool color scheme and that kind of thing. And so to start saving that kind of thing and just asking yourself either while you're saving it or later on when you revisit it, what was it? What is it about this that I can take as creative inspiration for the future? And to that end, I found someone um, recently on Instagram whose name is Jennifer Orkin Lewis. And she has a book, which I am not going to recommend, but I'm buying. And I bet you I'll be recommending it on the future show once I've read it. But she's got this book about different kinds of sketches that you can do. And it's a, it sounds really intriguing. Again, it hasn't shown up yet, but how you can kind of mix and match different kinds of prompts with different types of whether it be watercolor or sketching oh, with wow. a pencil or whatever. It sounds really, really cool. But since I don't recommend things I haven't read, I'm holding off on that one. But for now saying let's follow her as an artist and she is a painter, illustrator, author, and her Instagram. I mean, it's just really, really wonderful to look and and kind of ask myself the question, you know, what is it about this that can, you know, resonate with me? And yeah, I, anyway, that would be my suggestion to people, a couple of thoughts on checking yourself. And Julia, thank you so much for being able to add such richness to that whole check yourself idea. I really, really had fun with you exploring that with me. So I'm going to pass it over to you now for whatever you would like to recommend. So the recommendations are, are really funny. So I'm going to recommend a, a couple of things that are sort of class related and, and a couple of things that are not. Chiefly, I would recommend, and I say this in every class, that we proceed with humanity first, right? Um, that particularly if you're in the humanities, right, that there's a reason it is called the humanities. And if we could make the, the human condition important, in our work, then it forces us, or it, it I, I would say, encourages us to see um, even the small things as something much bigger. This might be the best syllabus, for example, a student has ever seen. Every semester, I get a note from a student that says, this is the best class I've ever taken. And I don't think it's because I'm such a fantastic teacher. I think it's because I am different. And I lean into that those differences, right? And when I say different, I mean different for them. Right. I'm different than whom they've encountered, Um, not just because I'm a black woman with a head full of locks and who's married to a black woman and that kind of thing, but that I am I I openly fail and I openly succeed. For example, um, in my graduate classes, students are required to submit their um, final papers for publication. And it's not about whether or not your your paper gets published. It's about going through the process to know what it's like. In so doing, I also go through that process with them because I'm at a research one university, I have to publish anyway. And I let them know if my paper was rejected. I let them know if it was revised, if if I got a revise and resubmit. I let them know if I got accepted to this conference, all of those things. And what I find is students are so much more excited about my vulnerability and then they become more willing to fail. And if they could fail fast and fail forward, then we, 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 we move a lot faster in that way. And so all of that means sort of leaning into 
our humanity, which is to say how we fail, how we succeed. The other thing I would recommend has a lot to do with how we view the classroom space, right? And, and these narrow confines, both as a material location and, and as an ideology, right? Um, but how can we view, I would recommend that uh, us changing the way we view the classroom itself, that we come in as teachers and yes, we have a command of the material more so than the, than the students, but there are a lot of ways in which students can teach us. And, and what are we willing to learn from our students? For example, at the end of the semester, students telling me they would like to have talked a little bit about, for example, white rappers in literary analysis. Now, we had white rappers on the syllabus but only one of merit, in my opinion, right? But students came in and said, I would like to talk about them because I want to talk about, do they fail? Is this cultural appropriation? Is this, and all of these things that I had in mind about race in the classroom and all of that kind of stuff, students always let me know that they're more capable of handling these tough conversations around race than we give them credit for. And so the the railing against uh, critical race theory and all of this kind of thing is so interesting to me because by and large, students want it. They want to know that thing. And the other recommendations are actual recommendations like books and and, and podcasts and, and TV shows. So right now I'm reading a hell of a lot of Octavia Butler because I think she's, uh, you know, prescient and uh, she's just amazing. And so I'm reading a lot of Octavia Butler. And so I would say, if you haven't, please do. And you're welcome. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm also reading uh, contemporary black writers and, and they've been very exciting for me because of the classes I'm teaching and that kind of thing. I also try to re- uh, listen to podcasts that keep me interested from start to finish. So podcasts like The Read, there are several other podcasts in that same vein that excite me. And then finally, I would say I'm watching a lot on um, Julia Child right now because I love to cook. And apparently there are like four or five different shows or films out about, about Julia Child right now. I have no idea why, but it's a joy for me. I'm particularly interested in the one that's on HBO Max. And I'm watching The Flight Attendant on, I think that's on HBO Max too, I, I think. But those are just the things that keep me sort of excited outside the classroom. Oh, I love that so much. Well, it has been such a delight to be connected with you, Julia. Thank you so much for your time today. And please thank your wife for her contributions to today's episode. <laughs> will do, will do. So, it's been really lovely talking with you. I'm so excited to share this episode. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks once again to Dr. Julia Charles Lennon for being a guest on today's episode. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger, and production support was provided by a wonderful teacher, Sierra Smith. Thanks to each one of you also for listening and being a part of the teaching in higher ed community. If you're not already subscribed to the weekly update, I'd love to have you do that and be able to have one more opportunity a week to connect with you. You can head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and receive the most recent episodes, show notes, and other resources that don't show up on the podcast. Once again, that was teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'll see you next time on teaching in higher ed.